Welcome to another episode of Visitings, where we talk to artists who are engaged with the public outside the traditional exhibition space. Why are they drawn to these communities and what's the stuff that inspires them? My name is Alan Nakagawa and I'll be your host. Raquel Gutierrez is a writer, poet, and performer who's become an integral voice in the LA and Southwest Vanguard. Her work is often experimental, personal, and political. Fearless, her words have developed into a textural truth of what is the POC experience and essentially what it means to be American. Uh, my name's Raquel Gutierrez. My title these days, um, you know, writer, writer, performer, um, and of course, within that title, uh, artist is hopefully implied, but um, general practice is focused on writing and then performing, creating some sort of dimension with the text. And recently, you're sort of um, traveling between um, Arizona yeah. and Los Angeles. Yes. You're originally from Los Angeles. Yeah, I'm of from Los Angeles. Yeah, yeah. and um, and it feels interesting uh, to be um, in the midst of that commute. Not so much; it's not a constant commute, but I think I'm back in LA uh, almost every month, maybe every six weeks. Um, which makes it hard to feel situated in Tucson. So I'm in Tucson, Arizona, and um, it's been really cool to be in Tucson, to be in Southern Arizona, and to, you know, first of all, experience the, um, you know, that natural topographical uh, landscape, um, the Sonoran Desert, and all of the the flora and fauna affiliated with that um, type of ecosystem. Of course, you have the saguaros and the ocotillos and um, a range of different cactus uh, species. Um, and so it's a, it's an interesting place to like watch your back and not get pricked, you know, as like a cactus might like just jump out, a, jump out on you, jump out at you when Yikes. you're on your walk or your hike. And, um, but at the same time you turn around, you're just like, you're the most weirdly beautiful thing I've ever seen, but ouch. (laughs) (laughs) So, and of course, you know, just being in the borderlands um, and being, I think, um, even more aware of uh, um, just the ways, you know, being in a border town, uh, just the ways in which the collision of these interesting arbitrary logics uh, butting up against each other. Um, And of course, all the ways in which people are impacted, um, people that are trying to come to the U.S. or crossing the border, people that are trying to stay in the U.S., um, and then that weird privileged mobility of U.S. Americans being able to do go back and forth. Mm-hmm. There are border checkpoints at uh, different parts of my commute, so it's interesting to also... I basically, when I, when I travel by car, a passport and a little bundle of sage... Wow. Yeah, so just to have all my bases covered. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, you know, just realizing, you know, I grew up in L.A., grew up in California, and, of course, we experienced, um, you know, in the 80s and 90s, especially with uh, Pete Wilson in the position of governor, 
uh, a range of um, xenophobic policies that impacted, uh, most notably, you know, two, Propositions 209 and 227, which, you know, were uh, unbeknownst, you know, prescient and kind of calling in uh, new thinking to, I think, produce a type of policies. Sorry. New policies um, that are even more inhumane now, right? So, um, but just the uh, the organizing and the, and the way uh, immigrants and children of immigrants, you know, mobilized in contra to those propositions. Um, and just the, uh, I don't know, there was a, a sense of solidarity that was so legible and palpable growing up in LA, in uh, South, Southeast LA especially, that um, I think, you know, that blue state California thing was something I didn't realize how much it kind of shrouded me from mm. a particular, um, you know, a very real xenophobia in the way that, like, I think when you experience, when, when you're in Arizona and you're just like, whoa, oh, whoa, this is, you know, there are certain spaces that I've been to. Uh, it's a very polarized city. It's a very brown, white city. And there'll be times like I have to go, you know, I don't know. I go to a nice restaurant, a nice bar, and there's moments where there'll be like a strange white person who'll just like can't believe that like a Mexican is in the space. <laughs> wow. They're like, and I'm just like, wow. Uh, so anyway, all that to say, I just feel like there's something to be said about different Southwestern experiences mm. for brown people, brown um you know, whether you're a third, fourth generation Chicanx or a child of immigrants like myself or even somebody who's more recently um, uh, recent to the country, um, there's something about California that just feels like, oh, no matter what, I'm going to be okay because there's a lot of us here and then there's a lot of us that want us here. and Whereas in Arizona, you're just like, whoa. No, <laughs> that red state, you know, that red state thing is real. So sorry, sorry, I'm, I'm, not, I have a that, little allergies. Between. Not that that doesn't happen. Oh, don't, don't worry. Mm-hmm. Not that that doesn't happen even in Los Angeles. Oh, of course. It yeah, totally course. happens yeah. in Los Angeles for sure. It just, uh, the specter of those, um, of, the, of those strange potential collisions feels more present or feels a little like, ooh, this is, you know, another layer of sweat here. So mm. So you've had experiences there? Um not not super overtly, but it does but there is a tension. There's a tension that you can feel more so that oh, that I never felt in California. And uh you know, Arizona's the first red state I've ever lived in. And um I've lived in California, I've lived in New York. So I've had a very privileged experience um, thus far. But Tucson's also, you know, it's the blue dot in the red state. So there are so many pockets, you know, so many great progressive pockets where um, that I, you know, spend time in, occupy myself. So I don't necessarily feel um, at in a vulnerable position. But um, But there are moments where, you know, you kind of have to... I don't know. I feel I, I notice that there's a certain way to to a, a burden placed on on Mexicanos on Chicanxes to maybe tread lightly. It's a trip. I don't know. I don't. Mm-hmm. I, I 
You gotta visit. You gotta come visit, Alan. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I like I like being in the shroud for sure. I, yeah, in the back in the womb. Um, but winters in the desert can't beat them. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And then just to see the contiguity of deserts from you know the the Colorado into the Sonoran from the way Joshua Tree transitions mm, into nice. Yeah, it's pretty gorgeous. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's the capital of light, too. It's like you'll never see a blue or blue. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's a trip. I mean, I love the blues and ambers of our L.A. Uh, smog-permeated sunsets, you know, those killer sunsets. The Hollywood filter. Mm-hmm, the Hollywood filter, totally. But, uh, yeah, so, but uh, Tucson definitely gives the Hollywood filter a run for its money. It's a trip. And, that, and you know, and I mean it. <laughs> And I don't know, I love color, so anytime there's some like blast of saturated color, I'm, I'm just kind of like, I'll always remember the place. Mm. Um, and uh, and yeah, I've seen some really, and some really great bands there. Um, cool, cool hang, uh, great patio. Uh, and I feel like several types of um, LA-based like art, artist-run projects and collectives and fundraisers and uh, have kind of come through the airliner to do their thing. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, I always felt like it spiritually transferred the energy from Mr. T's. Mm-hmm. You know, like when Mr. T's kind of closed. Mm-hmm. Now it's, I haven't been back since, but I heard it's kind of like the gaslight. It's really hip and... Yeah, I don't I don't know the gaslight, but I know I've heard Mr. T's like... Uh, sort oh, not, of a... I'm sorry, not the gaslight, the Edison. Oh, I've never I've never been to the Edison because the one time I tried to go, I was wearing Vans and they wouldn't let me in. <laughs> so I'm just like, what? Well, what? These are leather Vans. <laughs> okay. Oh. Yeah, I know, and I'm wow. just like, it's well, anyway. That that's the perfect explanation <laughs> of the Edison. Yeah. So, Mr. Cheese, um. I guess I've heard it described as a steampunk bowling alley with a bunch of with a with a bar yeah, or whatever. They're into steampunk. Yeah, and I'm just like, that's cool dorky you know <laughs> i'm like that's dorky like so there's like amelia Earhart, that leather flying cap or whatever oh just kidding that's what i think of when i hear steampunk <laughs> like airplane it like could be fun flying goggles i guess for sure yeah. that's a good look um so uh airline no the airliner yeah, yeah. um great. did it inhabit the spirit of mr t's maybe i don't know i feel maybe like not. it had its own Kind of, I feel like it had a, a weird little, um, do you know that Jodorowsky movie, Santa Sangre? No. Oh, it's like a weirdo, like, dark, carnivalesque um, vibe to it. Mm. Um, I feel like Airliner, it didn't have a dark carnivalesque, but it had like a punk, punk down in the dumps, like, mm, maybe squatter house carnivalesque oh, vibe to it. Nice. But like, you know, because I remember the stairs were really squeaky. <laughs> and even over even in the loud music, it was still it somehow pierced um the music coming out, you know, speakers, you could still hear the like squeak and I'm like, "Oh, that's interesting." <laughs> yeah, just, you know, l- weird little uh body memories that are kind of being summoned right now in talking about the airliner. So, how is it that your parents are there now? 
Um, well, my sister and her husband live in Lincoln Heights, so oh. my parents are like, speaking of squatters, you know. <laughs> yeah. So they're they're there, and uh, I don't I don't know. I mean, my parents are like seventy five, so I think they are probably thinking, oh, we should probably have one of our kids like look after us. Mm. So and it's not it's not gonna be me, you know. That's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's not going to be me because my brother, he's married with kids, has a house. My sister's married. They have a house. And I'm just like, I live in the desert. you know. <laughs> <laughs> and although the desert would do my parents well, it would it would be hard for me to. Better air. Better air. Yeah. It's warmer for their uh, joints and all that. So that. That what that what we just talked about was yeah. a perfect, you know, mm-hmm. uh, explanation of the change of your environment. Oh yeah, right. Yeah, from the airliner to <laughs> to the desert to the desert. Basically. Yeah, for sure. The desert's a lot quieter. It's it's uh, expansive. I think that what what why Tucson in the desert, why people are attracted to places like Joshua Tree and Ruben Martinez. You know, he's been writing about the desert for a long time. As far as far as like my entry entry point into a literary map of uh, of the desert, um, he writes. He's written stuff like you know people come to the desert to either uh, nurse a broken heart. Mm. nurse an addiction mm. bury the body <laughs> so a lot of things of just like um something something has to happen some form of some kind of transformation needs to take place because you're in this really um the space of what alice notley the poet alice notley calls you know blazing mystical light mm. right so there's nowhere to go there's nowhere to run like you really have to like face whatever it is you're facing down um, and get find a way to get to the other side of that. And how how has it changed your work, or how has it played a part in the development of your work? Um, I'm really interested in this idea of of how we produce ourselves as brown people, as uh, Southwestern people, Chicanx people, Latinx people. Um, you know, the ways in which Latinx, Chicanx, indigenous uh, sensibilities all kind of butt up against each other. Mm. Um, and um, so this idea of uh, the, of a reconstruction, you know, using a reconstruction logic, um, post-Lincoln, post-Kennedy, you know, post-Obama, uh, what it means to reconstruct ourselves in a Southwestern context. Um with a speculative sort of function or speculative thread of like assuming we were ever free, right? Mm. So, so it's been cool to just uh, get into Arizona histories, seeing the ways in which we're all implicated in each other's oppression. You know, not just a white settler colonial um, manifest destiny bros, but. Uh, <laughs> white bros, but just in the ways in which, you know, the Apache Wars, how Mexicans in Tohono O'odham and have been uh, at the front lines of those, you know, these uh, annihilations, right? Mm. These annihilations that uh, we hear now and there, you know, this massacre here, this massacre there. 
Uh, and it wasn't always just a brown-white um, dividing line, but that those lines are blurrier mm. and maybe warrant a little more focused attention. And doing that through poetry, doing that through mm. some sort of poetic lens. It's been cool, so I've been uh, spending a lot of time with uh, concepts grounding documentary poetics. What does it mean to um, produce a poem that's uh, contoured by different historical elements? Oh, I don't know what that is. Can you explain that? Well, like documentary poetics, we understand documentary in in, um, this portrait of, you know, whatever phenomena in the in the world that we're interested in, whether it's a documentary on blue whales or the documentary on uh you know oil uh oil drilling in you know in communities in the southwest um the documentary the document right that thing that brings some type of the the, the spectrum of witnessing to a particular part of the world and so taking that logic and applying it to a poetic practice, poetry, what is, you know, and just kind of like, uh, how do you make, how do you make this chocolate and peanut butter gel, right? So, mm. um, so learning, reading different, you know, texts like uh, Lo- uh, Lately Long Soldiers, Whereas, is a kind of an amazing contemporary example of a documentary poetic. She's um, Oglala Lakota. And a lot of her poems are very um, direct, almost plaintive, although there's these like m- moments of like associative like magic, like of just like, whoa, those images, like tying them together to, you know, these very dry modes of uh, just historical juridical language. Um, there's this one poem she has called 38 that you can find in a journal called Mud City Journal online. And 38 tells a story of um, uh, 38 Sioux um, warriors, uh, Lakota Oglala um, uh, fighters, you know, mostly, mostly, you know, men of, of, of fighting age and, and um, rising up, uh, an uprising in Mankato, Minnesota um, to just uh, protest just the, the, the just the treatment, the subjugation, just the everyday subjugation, and people can't take it. And um, it was a fir- it was like the largest um, massacre that was uh, mandated and sanctioned by the U.S. government under the presidency of Abraham Lincoln. So, thirty eight people were hung in Mankato, Minnesota, and she's essentially telling the story of like the the elision of that uh, event, an, an event that has become in her you know, tribes, like historical memory, something to never, you know, they can't forget. So to tell that story through a poem by invoking that this event happened the week after the Emancipation Proclamation was signed Mm. and that, uh, you know, a lot of things came at the um, uh, detriment to this, you know, Native community under Lincoln's watch and that that uh, Lincoln and policies against Native Americans, um, it's not something generally known, right? He's known as the great emancipator. So um, she tells a story about, you know, invoking this history, but at the same time disavowing 
the the historian model, the way that history is produced, and calling that into question, and calling those um, grander master narratives and the way they're uh, produced and disseminated, you know, in our mm. history books. And uh, it's really powerful. And there's an image of uh, one of the um, uh, white uh, settlers in Minnesota is like, if they're hungry, they could just eat grass. And so I forget the name of this guy in the poem, but uh, there's a moment where she says, and when the uprising happened, this man was killed and his mouth was stuffed with grass. And she called that the poem of her mm. poem, that that was the poem. It's a really powerful piece. And whereas is also um, taken from the official um, national apology that uh, President Obama issued, I guess maybe in 08 uh, against the Native American community. Um, that began with the word whereas, so she's sort of taking that and, um, you know, adding a new, uh, you know, new sheen, a new register to the way we understand that language in a way that, you know, she's, she's pissed, she's angry. Mm -hmm. Where could people read that? Whereas, it's, it's, um... You can get that at any bookstore where you buy your books, your poetry books. Um, it's fairly, uh, uh, I almost said ubiquitous, but I'm like, what poetry book is ubiquitous? Um, <laughs> you, can, you can get it at any bookstore. You can order it at Skylight. Um, you can, you know, if they don't carry it already. But it's also one of on the long list for the National Book Awards this year. Ah, nice. So, yeah, it's a, um, and I, I, if I was a betting poet, I'd put my beans and rice on that book. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> And in your work, where can people see your work? Um, let's see. I just got a couple of cool publishing situations. I have um, a few poems. <laughs> I know on this great journal called The Tiny. So thetinymagazine.com, edited by Gabriela Torres and Gina Myers. Um, so that's an easy kind of find. And then a couple of publishing bits in the new issue of Wisache which is out of the University of Texas in Centro Victoria. No, Victoria, Texas. Centro Victoria is a, um, sort of the Latin, Latino letters, Latinx letters uh, component of the writing program at that university. And Wisache is the um, literary brainchild of Dagoberto, novelist uh, Dagoberto Gilb, who um, is rad. Well, he's great. He's, he's got so many, so many great, such great energy and such wow. great vision. So a new issue of Wisache, issue number seven. I have a couple poems in there. Nice. So if you, and it, they're beautiful books. They're beautiful books and uh, their typog- typography, typographical skills are just like, oh, this is gorgeous. They're gorgeous books. Nice. Uh, and then the new issue of Fence magazine out of Albany, New York. So I got a poem in there, which was cool. Yeah, it's, a, it's been a nice, you know, nice month, so. Nice. And uh, and then I just sent off a manuscript to a press uh, who solicited it uh, recently. So that's off. You know, just some new just some new moon manifestations. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So we'll see. It's yeah. great. Congratulations. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. So I wrote. Yeah, I wrote a lot this last year. Uh, that's the thing about it. also Tucson, Arizona. It's like a very awesome literary community. Like there, those mofo's can write, you know. So and those mofo's can read, and so it's a as far as literary um, culture and events, 
it's uh, really active. It's, mm. it's bumping, it's jumping. So I think Tucson's like a cool literary and cinema town. Photography, for sure. And, um, you know, but the things that I don't get in Tucson, I, I get in L.A. So in L.A., I come here for my vitamin vitamin performance art, mm. you know, so. <laughs> and that that is a very important facet of your work is the performative absolutely. work. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Are they into it over there? Have you had... You have um, coho- cohorts over there as well. Yeah, I mean, there. Because I know you have a lot. Of, you have a big population here yeah, that supports. Yeah, for them. sure. I mean, performance art is definitely having has is in the midst of a renaissance, a rebirth in Los Angeles. I would say the last five five years, and in Tucson, I think people are trying. You know, people that I know want to uh, expand. Uh, the experience beyond the page, right, and to contour and offer. Uh, dimension to their work, whether through sound or an image. Um, so I think there is an, an, an impulse towards wanting to um, enact, you know, engage in what I call uh, some genre promiscuity. Mm. So, but um, but here, you know, in LA, there's already a fairly established um, relationship to performance and mm-hmm. performance art. Genre promiscuity. I've mm-hmm. never heard that before. That's nice. It's right, isn't it? I like oh, that. It's like the kind of promiscuity you can get down with. Yeah. You're like, that's cool. That's me. I am a genre slut. That's wonderful. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So, I'm going to use that as do that okay? it. Right. Yeah, please. Uh, genre promiscuity. Yeah, in the sense of just like, um, there is something to be said for breaking the convention of a genre or breaking as a way to break open, right? And see what else is possible. Absolutely. Yeah. What you've done. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> thanks, Ellen. Yeah. Feels nice. It's awesome. Yeah, this face is awesome. This is, I feel like so creatively bubbly right now. <laughs> <laughs> creatively effervescent. Yeah. The idea basically is, you know, literally people coming into my living room and just talking. Yeah. Yeah. Just and recording it. Into it. Yeah. Into it. And it's called... Visitings. Visitings. Yeah. Yeah. It's cool. So. This is my favorite part of, this is like one of my favorite LA neighborhoods for sure. K-Town. Um, is it K-Town? I always thought it was Mid-City. It, we're on the cusp of Mid-City. Oh yeah? Okay, yeah. cool. They actually call themselves Country Club, which I hate. Oh yeah, that's hilarious. That's because the street's called Country Club. Of course, but, yeah. But you know, it's, yeah. Country Club has all these horrible connotations to Of course. It. Anyway. Yeah. But it is, uh, it is, I would say Crenshaw and... Pico. Mm-hmm. That's the beginning of oh, Midtown. Sure. Oh, sure. You know, yeah. In, a sen- in my mind. Yeah. I mean, Mid City, that's an important so, artery for sure. Pico. Yeah. So it's kind of neither Midtown or mm-hmm. in neither. <laughs> Neither Midtown or Koreatown. Oh, yeah. But I don't know. I mean, I would come to Jabberjaw, which you live right around the corner from, like walking. You could walk, stumble. Um, two blocks away from the catch. From the catch, yes. Yeah. I've gone to the catch on, on several occasions. Yeah. She was such good dancing. <laughs> so fun, so hot. The go go dancers, they were so hot. <laughs> and just like these like cavernous like spaces, we were just like, whoa, whoa. Yeah, that was a that's a great that was a great club. That is a oh, great no, club. No, it's still there. Oh, okay, cool. It's actually you know, I've never met Jules, but mm-hmm. I'm told she threatens that she's gonna close it every like eight years. <sighs> and so and then it goes into a renaissance. And so it's in the cusp of this the next 
that this black eyed pea song don't don't funk with my heart just like popped in my head don't funk with my heart jewel <laughs> <laughs> but it's good it's a good strategy it's that it's that going out of business sales sign sure. that a lot of places yeah, have for like five eight years messing with our fear of scarcity <laughs> The nine ninety nine. Yeah, don't miss it. So yeah, I remember going to Jabberjaw and seeing. I think uh, that's where Madonna had the. Well, I know there was a Madonna party, but I think it was for, of course, Vogue. And I'm like, oh, whoa, there's so many limos. <laughs> <laughs> and we're all like just running to go see the punk show. But it's it's very eclectic, as you know. It's hip hop. Oh sure. Dance. Yeah. And the bunker is still going strong on Friday nights. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, maybe I'll pop by tonight. So it's, uh, but yeah, Jabber, Jabber Jaws. Jabber Jaws. That is a, a golden moment in my neighborhood. Yeah, for sure. It's like uh, underground um, gold, you know. 90s. Yeah, 90s. Like I was, um, I think it was 1991 or 1992, the first time I went to Jabberjaw to see a band called Nation of Ulysses. Oh, yeah. 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 And, um, and oh, it was like we're out so late and they didn't start to like one. And I think we only saw like the first four songs and we're like, we have to go home. <laughs> we have school tomorrow. <laughs> we're going to get in so much trouble. <laughs> yeah. That was rad. It was great. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so throughout high school, just like coming here, that was my, those were my football games. You know, those were like my school dances. It was like going to Jabberjaw and Friday Night Lights. Friday Night Lights. Oh yeah, hilarious. I love Friday Night Lights. So good. Such a great like. That was a great show that showed like all the lefties in Texas uh, making a show in the, in the during the Bush years. <laughs> That concludes another episode of Visitings. Thank you to Raquel Gutierrez for being on the show. Thanks as always to the Echo Park Film Center, Machine Projects, and Dub Lab for letting me share this. I'm Alan Nakagawa, sitting in my living room in Koreatown, saying thank you for listening to Visitings. Visitings.